0: Thank you so much. Good morning. Hallelujah. When you say hallelujah, you are saying Hebrew. Hallelujah is the word praise. So, hallelujah, you're saying to somebody, praise. Hallelujah, that's Hebrew. Praise in a declarative, admonitory way. And Yah is a shortened form which is found in the Old Testament for Yahweh. That is the personal name of God. Hallelujah. Praise. We don't say Yah or Yahweh. In fact, in, in large chunks of the world, out of uh, reverence and piety, we don't even utter the name of God which we verbalize as, Yahweh. So we say the Lord. And that's why throughout the, your Old Testament, when you see the Lord, even though the might, Lord might be in small, it's all in caps, so the Lord, that's standing in place of, out of reverence and respect and tradition, that's standing in place for the very word Yahweh, which some feel is the ineffable, unexpressible name of God. So. Hallelujah. I I always want to remember what we're saying there. Uh, Here's something that you could write down, worthy of remembrance in light of 1 Corinthians 13 and this emphasis on love. And I know that in English, the word love can be a verb or a noun. And if you say the love of God, you sometimes wonder, are we talking about our love for Him or His love for us? Love is a behavior, Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 13. And within the scope of the gospel, love is a behavior lured and inspired by the greater love of God. In other words, God's love inspires and draws love out of us. He loved us first... And here we see that love in action and it's clearly a love which we are to rise to that we are to express not just on special occasions or high holidays this love is something that that is real world love and as we read 1 Corinthians 13 again i want us to note that in verses 4 through 7 these are behaviors in other words these are The ways love acts. And we're looking here in 1 Corinthians to this kind of love displayed in the believer, in the person who's been touched by the love of God. So often when we sing of his love, even in some of the songs that we sang this morning, as should be, we're praising him and acknowledging his love for us. But this love is a love which God expects us to demonstrate and to show others because He first loved us. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to focus on verses 8-13 through 13 this morning, but um, we'll be it, it's built on the, the first uh, uh, seven verses, so we want to read it all together. By the way, note in these first three verses references to knowledge, Prophecy in tongues, he's going to pick that up in 8 through 13. They represent all the gifts in a sense. It's not that all the gifts are contained in them, but the Corinthians prized and some felt in some ways extra special, almost maybe elite or better than others, because of the gift of prophecy or the gift of tongues or the gift of knowledge. They're representative of all the gifts in the discussion, but Paul singles them out because he has something to say to those who may think that they're better than others. He wants them to realize that there's something even better. And that's why at the end of chapter 12 and at the beginning of of chapter 14, he says seek, you know, pursue, strive after love. All right, let's read this together. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries, and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect, or the partial, disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. Is love. Uh, pastoring in San Francisco, is a l- bit of a different ball game than Visalia. Uh, I helped. I worked with a number of addicts: uh, three heroin addicts, uh, a couple of cocaine addicts, alcohol. Uh, one guy, he was all three. I mean, he was all wrapped up into one—the perfect storm. But it was in those experiences that I learned an acronym. You know what an acronym is. In fact, the word acro, for example, in Acropolis, um, acro in Greek can talk about extreme or chief. Akron is an actual Greek word. It means summit. I don't know if that has anything to do with Akron, Ohio. I've never been there. But an acronym would really points to the fact that there are words like FBI, Federal, Federal Bureau of Investigation. So F stands for Federal, Bureau, for, B for Bureau, I for Investigation. Well, I learned an acronym uh, it, through those experiences, and it's the acronym HALT. HALT. It stands for Hungry, Angry, Lonely, Tired. HALT. Hungry, Angry, Lonely, and Tired. It's significant with addictions because when you're hungry, angry, lonely, and tired, you're vulnerable. And when you're vulnerable you become selfish, self-centered, and focused on yourself. And a lot of times when you're hungry, angry, lonely, and tired, you start to justify things because it's a poor me kind of attitude. I don't deserve this. I deserve better. And when we get into a state like that, we can justify all kinds of irresponsible and irrational behavior because we feel so sorry for ourselves. Now, why do I mention this? Well, everyone has a different threshold, whether you're an addict or not. And I have a different threshold than you. Thursday, after a long day, I had another responsibility. And right now, it just seems to me that uh, I can't even see when my life will show up again. I just have so much going on. And so I was on my way to this responsibility. In fact, when I left the the office here, I, I'm driving home. It was pretty pretty warm. I hadn't noticed with the cooler weather, but my air conditioning was broken. So then I'm driving to this event, and uh, little beads of sweat are are. Crawling like spiders through my hair and like bugs down my back. I'm so hot in this car and I'm sweating and I'm thinking to myself, I'm just kind of preoccupied with myself because it just seems like everything is not going my way. And Shelly is in the car with me. And of course, she is so sweet as always, too nice in fact. And I'm just miles away from her, absorbed with myself. Now, I mention this threshold because, um, let me illustrate it this way. In the Christian life, um, and I've noticed this just this week with uh, uh, a friend in our small group who's begun riding his bike, and I've been riding for a couple of years. Some guys were nice enough to me. To kind of help me get started and they didn't run me into the ground by riding at 22 or 23 miles per hour right off the bat they kind of brought me along and they would keep incrementally kind of upping the ante but each time I felt like I could do more wow I can do more you see what I'm saying so this weekend I completely kind of conceived this ride that I thought would be a bit of a challenge to my friend and leave him feeling like, wow, I can do more. Because he was thinking, I can't do that. I'm not even sure I can do that. But see, that's so much better than taking someone out, really raising the bar high and leaving them feeling like, I can't do enough. When you feel like you can't do enough, you don't step outside of yourself and take on those new challenges. So for me, this threshold on Thursday was God's way of showing me, John, you can do more. And do you realize that in life, God wants you to do more. He wants to stretch your faith. And sometimes, He takes these challenges, whether He orchestrates them or just arranges them because world ha- this world has enough challenges, God uses these challenges to stretch our faith because it always comes down to getting my eyes off of me and onto the Lord. Every moment of every day, is always a challenge to our faith. It's always a battle. Paul calls it the battle between the flesh and the spirit. That is, when God's controlling me, or I'm submitting to His role and will and control for my life, that's that's when I walk in the spirit. But when I'm walking in the flesh, I'm walking in my own strength and power. And that's huge. Selfishness craves. Love and trust waits upon the Lord, even as Brian was reminding us. So when I I was driving along, I was full of myself. I was absorbed with myself. And I was hungry because I hadn't eaten, because I had to go to this function where there was no meal provided and I didn't have time to eat. So I was hungry And I was angry. Well, I'd like to say I was peeved. You wouldn't have known I was angry. But we become peeved and frustrated when things just don't seem to go our way. And internally, we may not think of that as anger, because we think of anger as something out of control, really brash, really over the top. Oh, that's anger. But there is an anger. I mean, it all comes from the same seeds. And it comes when things are not in our control. And it starts to frustrate us, because in my selfishness, in my own strength, I wasn't fixing anything, and I was feeling sorry for myself, to be quite candid. Now, I know none of you can identify with me in in this, but just bear with me a moment. I was lonely. When you become self-absorbed, even in a crowd, you are isolated. I think it was Billy Graham who said, the smallest gift I ever saw was a man wrapped up in himself. <laughs> and that was me. I was wrapped up in myself. I didn't want to be in the car with Shelley because then I had to step outside of myself. I had to be patient and kind. See, I had to do the stuff of love. But the stuff of love does not come from an impoverished place when you're feeling like, well, what about me? When you're hungry, angry, lonely, and you're tired, and you don't see any place to rest. Now this is a negative illustration. And really, I don't like airing my dirty laundry. There are a couple of reasons I do. One is, I can't get up and preach about love if I don't share some of the realities of trying to love as God wants us to love. And I, I wasn't up to it at that time. And there are going to be times where you're going to fall short. It's going to cause you to realize, though, I can do more. And I did rebound quickly. And it was that same love that caused me to come clean with Shelley and say, you know, I am just right now I'm just feeling sorry for myself and I'm kind of ashamed. I didn't handle that very well. And then move on. But I also share this because even though I said you probably aren't going through this kind of stuff, actually I think this is probably real to life just for you like it is for me. Even though our thresholds are different. And God wants to use these occasions not for us to fall down and say, oh, I'll never get better, I'll never love like that, but to realize I can do more. And the issue is, and as we come to the end of 1 Corinthians 13, I want us to realize this. It always comes down to a choice. Am I going to try and do this in my own strength, under my own power, or am I going to do this in the power of the Lord? Am I going to do this His way? And that always calls for me to let the love of God in. Now listen, the love of God can become something embroidered on a wall, something we sing about. But as I was driving along, I needed to let God's love in. I needed to let His love touch every one of the issues that was troubling me and bothering me. I needed to trust that he really does care about these things, that he knows I'm hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. I needed to realize that I can trust him for these things, not try to take things into my own hands or get a stinking pity party going. That you have to take to heart if you doubt, if you distrust the love of God, that He doesn't know what you're going through, that He doesn't care, that He doesn't want to work through you and use even this vulnerable, weak situation to display His power, then you'll never get your eyes off of yourself. You'll never aspire to greater things. And you'll not have the strength when you're weak, the strength that comes from Him to do the kinds of things that love and love alone can do. But that's the way it works. Even when you're in a car with your wife of so many years, who knows you inside out, and you're struggling internally. It really was childish. But it calls for bowing before the Lord and letting His love lift you up. The, e, the, the key is always to let God be God in your life. To turn to Him, trust Him, knowing He'll satisfy your greatest needs. Here's another acronym. FAITH. FAITH. F. For all, I trust Him. F. For A. All. I. Me. Or you, I, T, trust, H, him, for all, or for anything, I trust him. That's faith. Love, you see, never fails. The very word Paul uses here in verse 8, which kind of is the crescendo, it's the apex, it's the summit of everything he said to this point, particularly 4 through 7. But it's also kind of a hinge that leads us to what comes next, because clearly the chapter ends in verse 13 with, the greatest of these is love. And as I said, at the end of 12 and at the beginning of 14, in other words, coming into this and going out of it, he says, pursue this more than anything else. And I think we've made this clear in the series. I hope you'll go back and listen to the ones if you've missed any. But the word actually means to fall. To fall. To fall to the ground. Have you ever seen somebody just fall? He says love doesn't do that. Love doesn't crumple. Love doesn't fall to the ground. And thus we get... It doesn't collapse. It doesn't fall apart. In other words, love never fails. If you ask in a situation, just as I should have asked it at that time on Thursday, what should I do? Actually, I knew. I just didn't want to trust the Lord. I was feeling selfish. For I was, It was a poor me moment. But see, what happens is, then there's wreckage to deal with. Selfishness, always ends up making things worse. And that's why there too, even when we think of behaviors and actions and wisdom and a course of direction, love never fails. It always applies. It always does the right thing. Romans 10.13, by the way, Paul says, love does no wrong to its neighbor. You see, love isn't just about candles and symphony, symphonic music. It's about behavior. It's about doing the right thing. It does what's responsible. It always builds, it never destroys. It always imitates Christ. We define love as seeking God's best for another. Now you see, that takes all the wishy-washiness out of it. Sometimes they call it tough love. Well, it, you know, it isn't tough or weak. It's just principled. Love does what's right. And what is right is guided by God's heart, His values. Love always blesses. Love is a beautiful thing. And it was just what the Corinthian church needed. Let me briefly share with you a little about the Corinthian church. If you've never read 1 Corinthians, it's 15 chapters. Originally, of course, it was just a long letter. No verses, no chapters. It was a letter written to a church. Corinth was was kind of like San Francisco during the gold rush. Or the early days of New York. It was a hub. It was... It was right at the end of a little isthmus, which is a little strip of, of, of earth. Well, actually, about 15 miles across. But when you talk about the oceans that it bridged, for, for sailors, it was huge. They actually ferried their ships over the land. They have tried building canals. Now they have one, but back in the day, they tried even in the 7th century, BC before Christ, building a canal. But what they did was they built a road and they took logs, and just like they would, would ferry large blocks of granite in the building of the pyramids, they'd roll these ships over. In other words, it was, a, it was a place of culture and trade and wealth because of all the trade that was coming through there. They had the Isthmian uh, Olympic Games, it was huge. Now, when you become a believer, I mean, Paul went there and and he spread the gospel. He knew how strategic Corinth was. When you become a believer, it's it's, it's not like getting a new operating system. I had to wait for hours, you know, with the, you get the iPhone and then when you get an update, and they it's like it cleans the whole phone and starts over, and it takes a long time. Then they offload and reload. Wouldn't it be nice if they did that for human beings? You become a Christian, stripped clean, start over. No baggage, no history, you know. Whole new operating system, but that's not the way. If you, for example, become a Christian at 30, What have you been doing for 29 years but uploading a whole bunch of wrong-headed thinking about what really matters, what's real value? In other words, the world has been your operating system. But now you become a believer at 30 and you're trying to unload a new world system, a new heaven system, if you will, on top of the world system. And things don't operate very well as you can imagine. So maybe you've only been walking with the Lord about a year, and you've got 29 years to 30 years of doing it all wrong, or mostly wrong, or in a way that's going to be partial and not whole, and it's going to conflict. And they bring, in other words, to put it simply, when we come into the church, we bring the world with us. And we look at things through that worldly lens. Now you know this is true. We bring our values. For example, you watch television and you learn all about the stars and all your favorite artists and so forth. The clothes they wear, what they value, the houses that they live in, the cars they drive, the things that they adore. And we, that, that is held up as the chief end and goal of life I mean how else could they have shows built around this stuff if people weren't buying into that you come into church and let's say you've got it all and you start seeing other people and you think I'm a lot better than him or her my clothes are nicer I've worked hard so I've earned more I've got more my friends are better. I do certain things that set me apart. You bring that with you into the church. And that was what had happened in Corinth. There were divisions between them. The haves and the have-nots. Let me share with you. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 just for example. I'm going to highlight just a couple of things to give you a feel for what's going on in Corinth. And look at this in 1 Corinthians 3. Brothers... I could not address you as spiritual but as worldly. See just coming to church doesn 't necessarily change the operating system. We bring that stuff with us, and the whole thing about the getting into the word and coming close to the Lord and letting him think thinking about these great spiritual truths that are revealed from above revealed through Jesus Christ, revealed through his word is that we need to alter a lot of that old thinking. It doesn't necessarily all need to be thrown out but it has to be revised, reshaped, upgraded. You get the idea. He says I couldn't address you as spiritual but as worldly. The word is actually fleshly. And in the Old Testament, it says like, all people are like grass. See, grass withers. It's weak. Grass stands for me standing in my independence, doing it on my own without God. But the Spirit, that refers See, and that's, there's the contrast that Paul picks up. When we're living fleshly, We're living like I was as I was driving up toward Fresno, in my own strength, my way, not even giving thought to the Lord. But when we're walking in the Spirit, it puts the flesh in its place, and it's a different thing altogether. Mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food. In other words, he accommodated them. He started with some basic things. For you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? Jump over to verse 18. Don't deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he's wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he can become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. See, that division comes from thinking, I know more. My way's better. I don't need to lean or surrender to the Lord. I just call on him when I need a little help, like calling a plumber when the toilet's plugged. Here's another example. When they would meet to have the Lord's meal, they met in houses. Many of them were wealthy. There's a lot of detail that uh, I'm not going to go into, but I'm just going to kind of give you what's come to the surface. But in a larger home, there's what's called the triclinium, which refers to three beds, or three cots, three reclinings. This would be like a really nice dining room. I mean, you don't have friends sit at the breakfast bar in your kitchen. You get out the good china and stuff. You have it in the dining room, wherever you designate that. The triclinium was the nice dining room of a home. And then there was the atrium, which would be like your backyard patio. And when they met for the Lord's meal, some were admitted to the triclinium and others were assigned to the atrium. And there's evidence, good evidence, that some ate better in the triclinium than those in the atrium. And those who met in the triclinium didn't even wait for those in the atrium. The Lord's Mill is the most unifying thing I can think of. It's when we all come in our sinfulness and acknowledge again the cross of Jesus Christ that not one of us has one smidgen of merit to justify the love of God. And yet, they're using this occasion in an upside down, backward way to kind of create an elite class. Read chapter 11, verses 17 through 22. I'm not going to take the time, although I did in the first service. They got a bonus. Here's another. Paul says the church is like the body of Christ, he uses the expression, members of one another. When you read carefully in chapter 12, there are places where the foot says, I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. And you just think about that a moment. There were people in the church of Corinth that didn't feel like they belonged because they weren't a part of the in group. You know, I don't know if you use the word clique or click or how you pronounce it, but it means a segregated group where admission is not open. There shouldn't be that sort of thing in Corinth. The I as Paul says in verse 21, should not say to the hand, I have no need of you. So you've got the foot who doesn't feel like it's a hand, so it doesn't belong to the body. And the hand is not an eye, so it doesn't belong. We've got this echelon, these levels of superiority and specialness. Not in God's eyes, but in eyes of the members of the church that is wrong it is not of love you got a tongues group if you get all the people who speak in tongues together they start their own little church it's an eye church or a hand church or a foot church they got their special doctrine and they don't want feet or hands or in there. Or you got the you got the prophecy group. All those who have the gift of prophecy or the gift of knowledge group. You see the divisions? This is is no witness to the world. Because it is the world. It's what the world does. It's what comes naturally. It's what we do automatically. It's the world default operating system. And Paul's saying here in 13, love has to overcome that because it's love that penetrates our hearts with the love of God. Through Jesus Christ. Now I want to say something to you there is no doctrine or teaching that eclipses the most important doctrine, the doctrine of love. There's no prophecy group that gets to be unloving because it's the prophecy group. There's no tongues group that gets to be the tongues group and do whatever it wants and just eliminate love because it's the tongues group. There's no knowledge group that because of its knowledge doesn't have to be loving because it's the knowledge group. Because what Paul is saying here in 8-13 through 13 is there is nothing more important than love. It is the highest doctrine. And not only is it the highest because God is love and He shows His love to us in Jesus Christ, it is His banner to the world but love in all circumstances as i've already explained as paul says even better in 1st corinthians 13:4 through 7 love is the way to behave in a way that brings blessing, does the right thing, is constructive, builds up, shows others the gospel. And it's what you and I need to do. It's what I needed to do when I was driving in the car and full of myself. And it all begins with letting His love in, letting it satisfy the things of hungry, angry, lonely, tired, exercising for all I trust Him. Faith. I read on uh, Facebook, I think it was Facebook, maybe it wasn't, Jacob cheated, Peter had a temper, David had an affair, Noah got drunk, Jonah ran from God, Paul committed murder, Gideon was insecure... Miriam gossiped, Martha worried, Thomas doubted, Sarah was impatient, Elijah was moody, Moses stuttered, Zacchaeus was short, Abraham was old, and Lazarus was dead. (laughs) But here's the tag, and we might quibble with the descriptions, but the point is clear. God doesn't call the qualified, He qualifies the call. And with that, I want to close with 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not. To nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who's become for us wisdom of God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. He doesn't use the weak things of the world if we don't think we're weak. Paul said, Don't be deceived, you are weak. But in the Lord, see, when I think I'm strong, I'm not leaning on the Lord. But when I realize I'm weak, I lean on Him. And when I lean on Him, for all things I trust Him, faith, God exercises power in a way to demonstrate His love. Will you stand with me? Let me pray for us. As, a, as you stand, and just in the moment before we pray, I am confident that God has put his finger on some area of your life where you have been exercising selfishness and not exercising the power of God in his love. Don't turn away from that. It's a crossroads for you. Trust the Lord. Handle it in His power. Give Him the chance to show His faithfulness and to teach us that we can do more in Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for your love in Jesus Christ, for the work of your Spirit. There are so many ways that you protect us throughout the week. We, d- we don't even realize it. Sometimes we get glimpses, but in so many ways in which you bless us, you're at work in our lives, and, and we're always looking for some telltale evidence, but there are so many ways that we need to be open your faithfulness and loyalty to us your great love for us Father if we are aware of that and grateful may we find solace in your love strength there to be like Jesus and it's in his matchless name we pray amen This has been a production of Grace Community Church of Isalia. For more information, go to our website at www.gccvisalia.org or for more sermons, go to gccvisalia.org podcast.